According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him at peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, we've been dealing with the warning passage here, verses 1 through 6. And today we get an illustration of that. It comes from agriculture in verses 7 and 8. And then we'll be able to move on to the better things. Say, what's better than salvation? Well, better things that accompany salvation. And these are the better things that uh, uh, are clearly better than apostasy. <laughs> clearly better than being falling away from the faith and being a worthless ground uh, susceptible to being burned. And that's the warning that we have. It's a very serious warning. I want to open us up with a word of prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to, uh, to bless our study, to pay heed to the warnings that He's provided. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before You uh, humbly in uh, appreciation of Your grace, Father, because we don't deserve this. Who are we that you should reveal your mind, that you should invite us into your counsel and teach us from your word? And yet here we are in Christ, Father, and you freely give us all things. And I thank you for the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. Might that be active and powerful, especially today. Uh, We're in a chapter that scares a lot of people, Uh, folks that use this to try to, uh, well, they, they... handle this chapter in a non-careful way, and they think they're, they're scared of losing their salvation, Father. When, uh, of course, your word says nothing of the sort, that uh, having been saved, we're saved forever. We have eternal life, and we understand that. And yet, Father, in the, in the fear over the misunderstanding, they fail to have the proper fear. The fear is falling away. The fear is apostasy and under your hand of judgment. And the fear is your fire, in our temporal life discipline. So, Father, uh, we don't want that. So open our eyes to your truth. Teach us from this word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. And so uh, as we've been looking at it, uh, it's very clear that we're talking about believers and in the perils of falling away. Uh, In the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That is quite clearly a fourfold description of a church-age believer priest. There is no question about it. It is appropriate for converts. It's appropriate for, for crossovers, that I like to call them. When, old, when an Old Testament believer crosses into the church age and is baptized with the Holy Spirit and is ushered into the body of Christ, he may have been saved in the Old Testament, but he's now crossed over into the church. And so we understand that. Likewise, a brand new convert, someone that was just saved, receives the Holy Spirit at the moment of their salvation. We understand that. And the idea of enlightenment, as it says, who have once been enlightened, it's once and only once, because it's once and for all that, uh, that he died for our sins, and it's once and for all that we receive eternal life. Uh, so there's no second salvation, because you never lose the first salvation. And uh, we can be clear on that as well. But this is the, the nature of a true believer, and then have fallen away in verse 6. And the problem is, of course, people read falling away in verse 6, and they jump to the assumption that that means they've lost their salvation. It doesn't say that. It says they fell away. 
All right, and we recognize from other passages, we recognize throughout Scripture that falling away is a a circumstance called apostasy, where you're no longer walking in the experiential walk that you're called to walk as a believer. You don't stop being a believer, you just stop walking like a believer. And that's a problem, because if you stop walking like a believer, God is going to be disciplining you. He loves you. He loves you like a father, and he loves you too much to leave you in that apostasy without his loving hand of correction upon you. And uh, this is what we have here. In fact, we have it in all these chapters uh, leading up to chapter 12, where it gets explicitly spelled out. That says, look, if you're without discipline, then you're not even a son to begin with. You're an illegitimate son. And uh, we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 12. And so the reason why I think people struggle with this, the Calvinists want to think, know, of course, that you can't lose your salvation. So they have to kind of twist words around to, to try to convince people that these guys here aren't even saved to begin with. Then the Arminians, likewise, they, they like to use this passage to say, well, they lost their salvation. That's what it means when you fall away. And both camps are wrong in, the, in uh, what they're doing with damaging these texts. So this is where we've been. I'm not going to rehash last week. If you are interested, though, uh, everything we teach here is on the website. And so that means last week's message is just sitting there. That MP3 is sitting there minding its own MP3 business. And you can feel free to download it anytime and, and make it your business. But it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. And this is the, uh, the essence of apostasy, when you re-crucify the Lord, when you put yourself in the place of God the Father and you reject what the Father was satisfied by and you declare that you now are the sovereign judge of the universe. Then we get to the illustration. And it's uh, an allegory. An allegory is a prolonged metaphor, and we get this. And so he uses figurative language, language of, of farming or gardening. He uses the the figurative language to illustrate what he just got done saying and to make the point that this is uh, this is not a loss of salvation, but this is a believer who should know better not doing what he should be doing. And a father who should be pleased with their son and the work they're producing is displeased with the son and the work that they're, that they're producing. And so we'll see that here in verses 7 and 8. Four, ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful uh, to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. All right, so that, those are our two verses there of metaphor, our two verses of, of allegory, if you will, as an extended metaphor. And uh, But it's teaching the same doctrine that we just got through. It's teaching about the, the ground didn't quit being ground. The ground is still ground, all right? Just as a believer doesn't quit being a believer. But if instead of producing fruit, you're producing thorns and thistles, that's a problem, all right? Because the, uh, the one that's farming, the one that's tilling, uh, the one who's doing the tilling is expecting to bear the fruit of it, see? And so we're going to see this here. We have a farming slash gardening allegory, and it's reteaching the doctrine that verses 1 through 6 taught. And it's using actually language from this allegory that echoes God's judgment of Adam from Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19. We have the thorns and the thistles that are mentioned. We have the, uh, the rain uh, being mentioned, which Adam didn't even have rain. We have a uh, curse. 
And as the, the land was cursed in Adam's fall, this land is not cursed. It says close to being cursed, near to being cursed, but not cursed. How can God curse whom he has already blessed in the sense that no believer is ever subject to a curse having been saved by the grace of God? So there's, uh, there's aspects here we want to see. And uh, we'll go to Genesis 3 in a moment, but let's just highlight these details here. Ground drinks the rain. So there's a purpose for it. The rain is sent and the rain is supposed to nourish. The rain is supposed to uh, uh, benefit the seed that's invisible. The seed is buried, the seed is down there, but then the ground is going to spring forth and that seed will, will uh, produce what it's supposed to produce. So it's not, a, it's not the rain's fault. It's not uh, God's fault. Uh, this ground has everything it needs, right? And a believer who falls into apostasy, a believer who does that, has everything they need. All right? They can't blame God. They can't, well, you didn't water me enough, so I, I fell into apostasy, you know, no, no, it, the rain often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful. Understand the usefulness here to, uh, to those for whose sake it is also tilled. And uh, I think some of the benefits that uh, we get confused are we think that fruit bearing benefits us, that when we bear fruit, when we preach a Bible class, when we give the gospel, when we engage in a work of, of ministry, uh, when we do something uh, in, in our spiritual walk, we confuse for whom we're doing it. See? And so maybe I'm going to visit, uh, you know, someone that's homebound and they can't, uh, they can't leave their house for three weeks and, you know, we're going to go and we're going to fellowship and we're going to encourage and we're going to bring meals and, and so forth. For whom are we doing that? Okay, it's for the Lord. Okay? Now that sister will also benefit in the process. It's almost like a, a side effect. It's almost like uh, icing on the cake, if you will. But the main point is we are serving the Lord. That fruit production is for the Lord, not for ourselves, not for even the other people that seems to be the ones that we're serving. For those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles... So notice we have rewards in terms of blessings, or we have uh, consequences in terms of judgment, in terms of discipline, the fire that will come. If it yields thorns and thistles, well, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? That's not why, those weren't the seeds that were planted, that's not the design. Why is it producing thorns and thistles? It is worthless. So there's useful in verse 7, there's worthless in verse 8. And what we have here in this metaphor, what we have here in this language is the same language we have elsewhere in Scripture that speak about being in fellowship or being out of fellowship. Remember in 1 Timothy, the idea of being a vessel uh, cleansed, being a vessel useful for good works. See, 2 Timothy actually, 2 Timothy 2. To be a vessel for honor, useful for every good work. And so uh, do we want to be useful or do we want to be worthless? We're still us. We're still the ground. We don't lose salvation, but we're going to forsake the blessings God would have for us if we're not doing the work that he's called for us to do. And so worthless and near or close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, why does a gardener burn the land? Why does a farmer burn the land? What's the purpose in the burning? It's not eternally burned in the lake of fire, okay? Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah, the burning is a cleansing. The burning is, is, a, is a restoration. The burning is a chance to, to save that field for next year, to save that field long term. All right. And in some cases, that's all you can do, that you've tried everything else and we just got to got to burn it and start over. All right. And so the purpose for burning is to is still the same purpose is to bear more fruit. It's still the, the purpose is to go back and do what you should have been doing in verse seven. Before he burned you in verse eight. OK. And if you want more on this, I recommend John 15. I recommend the parable when Jesus said, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. Same concept. That we are, we're called to bear fruit as we abide in Christ. And if we don't, the branches that don't bear fruit, he lifts up. The purpose is, and then he prunes them. He prunes them so that we bear more fruit. So I would encourage you to, uh, to uh, pay attention to that passage as well. But in Genesis chapter 3, when we have, now this is not a quotation, it's not a citation, but it is an echo. It is an it is a, 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 a allusion, if you will, to God's judgment on Adam in Genesis 3. And I think insofar as it echoes, it's useful to see what it doesn't say as well as, of course, what it does say. So in Genesis 3, when God is, uh, is uh, passing His judgment here, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and uh, then God assigns the consequences. We should know this passage very well. So the chapter starts with the serpent and the temptation, and the woman commits the sin, but her eyes are not open. That is significant. She does eat, and yet uh, her eyes are not open until verse 7. So she eats, but then she gives to her husband also with her, and he ate. Then, then, once the spiritual leader eats, consequences are applied to the husband and the wife. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So the spiritual leadership is the accountable party. It's a federal headship in Adam, and we recognize that. Eve was in Adam, having come from his rib and and subject to him. And so she faces his consequences. She doesn't even face her own consequences. She faces his consequences. So the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And yeah, that's typically human fallen trying to cover for what you did wrong. Anyway, when we get down to this and then he's walking in the garden and he's calling out, um, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 11. And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me. <laughs> you talk about a dodge. You talk about a blame. You know, you gave me the wrong woman. Why did you give me such a loser? You should have given me a better woman. You give me a woman that wouldn't have eaten that. And I wouldn't have eaten that. The woman you gave to me with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, notice he doesn't ask the serpent what the serpent did. He didn't care. He, he's, uh, the serpent's already a judged creature anyway. Uh, he's giving Adam and Eve the confession opportunities. Uh, the serpent doesn't get a confession opportunity. So because you have done this, cursed. Notice that word, cursed. Cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. And uh, interestingly enough, with the curse comes a promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Called the protoevangelium, the very first gospel message ever given in Scripture is this promise right here. 
that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. Then to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So the serpent has a consequence, the woman has a consequence, the man has a consequence. To Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed, notice, not you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. See, Adam's not cursed, but the ground is cursed on account of him. He is the accountable party. He is the federal head. He's been given dominion over creation. It's the creation mandate that uh, Adam and Eve were given in the image of God. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field. And so this is the language that the author of Hebrew uses when he uses this analogy, a prolonged analogy, when he uses this allegory to teach this doctrine. Uh, Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so this language is used. Now it's, it's used as an echo, it's used as an allusion, it's not a direct citation, it's not a direct quotation. So we observe the similarities, we also observe the differences. In Hebrews, the ground is not cursed. It says it is close. It is near to being cursed. That it is uh, the judgment that's coming upon it is of a similar judgment, but it is not an identical judgment. That judgment is not reassigned again a second time. But the consequences are close. All right? And that's important. Because if you've ever known anybody, or even yourself, maybe in a bygone day, when you were in that kind of darkness and that kind of apostasy, uh, you didn't lose your salvation, but your activity was sure close to an unbeliever's. Your, uh, your lifestyle was pretty close to their lifestyle. Uh, in fact, you know, other than the fact that you possess eternal life and you're going to go to heaven when you die, on a practical basis, the believer in apostasy is pretty close to the unbeliever, right? And so we see that close makes the point. The fact that it is close to being burned. The fact that it is close to uh, a, uh, a uh, I'm sorry, close to being cursed ending up being burned. All right, so we have language then that echoes that judgment. We also have a similar analogy that's used, a similar allegory, and yet with a positive message, a very positive tone that's employed by Isaiah in Isaiah 55. A similar allegory with a positive tone was employed by Isaiah to great effect. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 15, you can join me there. Isaiah 55, 10 through 13. I love Isaiah, and Isaiah 55 in particular was one of the toughest chapters. You remember, not that long ago, we did Isaiah 66 chapters and 66 Sundays. And uh, 55 was one, man, you just want to stop and spend a month right there. You know, spend, spend six months right there. And uh, how, do we, how do we limit one week to chapter 55 and then move on to to 56 next week because there's such meat, such depth of doctrine that can be found here. And even before you get down to 10 through 13, you have the gospel call in verse 1 where it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. 
come by wine and milk without money and without cost. And so we have this language that I think we all can relate to, right? These common allegories, these common metaphors uh, are just a, a glorious thing. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. In any event, so we have this great uh, invitation, this great gospel call. We have uh, the blessings of David and the greater son of David in this chapter. Uh, Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Ah, Just beautiful, beautiful uh, truth all throughout this passage. And um, along with the salvation comes the walk. Along with the eternal salvation comes the corresponding walk. How is it that I walk now as a believer? Because his thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are his ways my ways. We want to pursue his ways, his thoughts. And then, in order to pursue the ways of God, in order to pursue the thoughts of God, well, how do we do that? He goes to a gardening metaphor. He goes to this language here, the same, the same kind of language we have in Hebrews 6. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. All right, so in these metaphors, whether it's Genesis or Isaiah or or John 15 or Hebrews or wherever, when Scripture is employing this kind of language, we recognize that we, we have the, the similar language that we learn from. And so when rain is going forth, that's the Word of God. And the, the springing forth of truth is our application of the Word of God, whereby we're bearing fruit. And so uh, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. See, who sent it? Whose purpose is it? Whose good pleasure is it? Who expects to to reap this? It's God. It's God. That's why He put that field there. That's why He planted that seed there. That's why He sent that water there. That's why He expects you, where you're planted, where you're watered, to be bearing that fruit. And so He accomplishes it. Without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. Now, it's curious to me because God is guaranteed to get what He wants, and yet He honors our volition. God is guaranteed to get what He purposes without overruling our volition. He doesn't coerce our volition. But if we become defiant, if we decide to jump off the the, the path, and, uh, you know, because His ways are not our ways, and we decide we like our ways better, and... uh, and so we fall beside the road. If we have that fall into apostasy, then what happens? What's the consequences? Does that mean God is thwarted? Does that mean He does not achieve His objectives? No, it means He applies other means like divine discipline. He might burn that field, which is not going to be pleasant for us. But uh, then we get through the burning and, okay, let's try this again. Or He might send a great fish, swallow you and vomit you up on a beach, okay? You know, God never coerced Jonah's volition either. Vomited him up on the beach and said, okay, go to Nineveh. And, uh, you know, we reach a point where we're tired of being burned or we're tired of 
fish vomit. We're fired. We're tired of whatever the discipline is. And we say, okay, Lord, I'm going to become obedient. I'm going to do this. And so at the end of the day, what has God accomplished? He's accomplished the purpose for which he sent it. He's accomplishing his good pleasure. And so, uh, you know, we can do this the easy way. We can do this the hard way. Uh, I recommend the easy way. But either way, God's going to teach us what we need to learn. And that becomes important. All right. So, uh, my, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth and will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And uh, that sounds fun. Uh, so not only are we going out, but we're actually being led forth. We're not going out alone. All right? God's not a cattle driver that cracks the whip and says, go over there while I stand over here, or while I march behind you. He's actually a shepherd that walks in front of us, that leads us. And so we do go out, but we go out being led, being led forth with peace. So this goes well with Psalm 23 and the shepherd there. And so uh, the mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it'll be a memorial to the Lord. You know, when you're living the Word of God and walking with Jesus, it's amazing, you would think. Why is it so amazing? What happens to the thorn bushes? What happens to the nettles? What happens to all that other, you know, dumb stuff that we were producing in our carnality? None of that's to be seen. Instead, we've got, man, we've got a cypress. We've got a myrtle. We've got all kinds of things. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. And uh, man, what a passage. So in seeing these allegories and seeing the way that they're used and seeing, uh, it's not on the screen, but like I say, John 15, where there's the lifting up of the branches, there's the pruning of the branches. When you see that God, the vine dresser, is actively engaged in this, when you see that Jesus, the head of the church, is actively engaged in this, it's much more natural to take that burning of the field in Hebrews, that that burning is not the lake of fire for all eternity. It is not someone that used to be saved, that lost their salvation, and now they're just going to go to hell. No, it is a father who loves them and disciplines them and is taking the necessary action even to the extremity of burning in order to make that land productive. And it still remains his objective to make that land productive in, uh, in every way. All right. But beloved... We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. And so we move on past the warnings and past the allegory. We actually move on to um, a comfort. We move on to a verse of, uh, of encouragement. And it's really the first one uh, unique to all the, the warning passages in Hebrews this is the centerpiece of the five warning passages. It's the third out of the five. It is the longest of the five. It is, in some respects, the scariest of the five, although I think chapter 10 is pretty scary also. Um, and on this basis, though, I think the Holy Spirit and the author, Luke, or whoever the author is, uh, was led to go ahead and put a note of, of encouragement in here uh, at the end of the warning. 
right? So let's not fall away. Let's, uh, don't fall away. Don't uh, put yourself in, under the, the burning judgment of, of temporal life discipline. And then the author tries to encourage them to say, you know what, we, we believe you guys are, are not going to do this. We are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, although we are speaking in this way. Even though I have to give you this warning, even though you're in danger of the apostasy and I'm warning you against the apostasy and it's going to break my heart if I see you in that apostasy, nevertheless, even though I'm giving you this message, I remain convinced, we, plural, we remain convinced that you are not going to fall into that apostasy that you're going to heed this warning and that, uh, that you're going to respond uh, appropriately. So the third and the longest of Hebrews 5 primary warnings is followed with an encouraging but. Okay? It's followed with an encouraging but. Okay? So having said all that, he kind of takes a breath and says, but not you guys. The field that's ready to be burned, but not you guys. Okay? But beloved, beloved ones, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, although we are speaking in this way. All right, so this is his encouraging but. And uh, he's um, describing the nature of how the Word of God is going to save them, how it's going to save them experientially in their phase two salvation, how the Word of God is going to rescue them from this the danger of this fall and falling away. And uh, the aspect here. Interestingly enough, it again becomes plural. We discussed that, that the author had help. The author had a team he was working with or traveling with or um, maybe just a group he was praying with, some associates that were involved in the sending of the letter. I still believe it's a single primary author, but with helpers, there's no problem using a, a we in the uh, in the uh, language here. All right. Um, in particular, if you don't remember what these warning passages are, just here's the list for you, and I would encourage you to jot them down and read through them. Remind yourself what the lists were, uh, what the warnings were in chapter two. The contrast there with the angels. Um, that's Hebrews two verses one through four. The second warning is uh, Hebrews three seven all the way through four nine uh, four thirteen. The third warning is this one that started in 5.11 and runs all the way through 6.8. That's the longest. I mean, it spans the chapter division. It spans uh, more verses than any of the other warnings. Uh, the fourth warning is in the coming chapter 10. We're going to have a bit of a gap here, a little bit of a break before we get to the next warning because uh, the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7, we have a long discourse on that Melchizedek priesthood. And so there's a lot of information that relates to that Melchizedek priesthood on a positive basis before the next warning comes in, uh, in chapter 10. Again, it's a warning of falling away, not losing salvation. And then the, the final warning is chapter 12, verses 12 through 29. And uh, I would just encourage you on that. I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time on that this morning, but just real quickly. You think it would be useful if, uh, if you need to memorize what the five warnings are, just come up with a catchphrase, come up with a catch word or a term, something to jog your memory so that you keep straight. Well, what was that chapter two warning about? And how is it different from the chapter uh, you know, three warning, the chapter five warning, and uh, maybe that will help you, you know, just think your way through. So um, 
chapter 2 is the word spoken through angels warning. Remember that? The pay much closer attention warning. Because we had a whole chapter dealing with the angels and then we have a for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. So pick a, pick a word that clicks with you. Pick a word, maybe the, the don't drift away warning. All right. And uh, you might recall some of the language there that spoke of anchors and spoke of ships that are tied to the pier. Um, so pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Think of this as the drifting away warning. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Anyway, this is the warning that's listed here. And it comes in a contrast with the angelic conflict, with uh, the, the word spoken through angels. And, and uh, the, whole, the whole circumstance we have today with uh, Michael and Gabriel and the elect angels on one hand, and then Satan and the fallen angels on the other hand, and the fact that they are now locked into that, into that permanent estate as we, uh, as we dealt with it there. So you might think of chapter 2 as the do not drift warning. And then we get into chapter 3, and uh, in these early verses we have the, uh, the Moses uh, contrast, and then we have the, um, what I think is verse 12, locks it into my mind, Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That hits me every time. Because any one of you includes me, includes all of us. You know, who, who's left out when it says, in any one of you? We're all vulnerable. We all can fall in unbelief. And if we fall in unbelief, we fail to enter into rest. And this warning, by the way, it finishes chapter 3, it carries across into chapter 4, and it goes all the way down to verse 13, where, uh, you know, the Word of God is the, is the judge. And so, um, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Maybe you want to use 4.11 as your, as your key verse. Um, but uh, pick one of these verses that, that jumps out at you, either the evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, that's, that's the one that does it for me. Um, or be diligent to enter that rest. Okay, maybe or maybe use both, but that's the second warning. Okay, so we have the do not drift warning with the angels, and now we have the uh, don't fail to enter into rest in uh, chapters three and four. Um, anything in here have to do with going to hell, throwing away your eternal life? <laughs> no, right? The wilderness generation didn't go back to Egypt. They died in the wilderness, okay? None of us is going to lose our regenerate status, going to lose our redeemed status. Uh, we, we maintain our redeemed status even if we die in the wilderness and fail to enter the land of rest. All right, the third warning is the one we're looking at today, uh, 5.11 through 6.8. And uh, this one too, you might think of as the uh, if God permits, uh, or you might think of it as the it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Um, let us press on to maturity. Maybe that's the one you want to jump out at you. Which, which of these verses do you want to jump out at you? Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. How about that? Let's press on to maturity, if God permits. And uh, we think, wow, here's a serious warning. Here's a serious warning whereby God might not permit 
whereby he might leave me in the apostasy. So let's, uh, let's pay heed to this warning here. When we get into chapter 10, just a preview, what's this warning about? And this one also is not about losing salvation. But it does sound terrifying. A terrifying expectation of judgment. Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 31. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Willful, defiant sin. There was no Levitical provision for it. There's no church provision for it. Willful, defiant sin. But a certain, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's, uh, that's severe. Okay? Not losing salvation, but being expelled from the, the temple, being banned from all priestly service, because there's no sacrifice for those sins. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? This is, this, this is the verse that gives us our ratio. And it says, look, if there was accountability under the Aaronic priesthood, multiply that times infinity is our accountability in the church. It says, how much more? Infinitely more. How do you put a number to it? Because theirs is shadows, ours is substance. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Remember what we talked about last week? When you crucify Christ again to yourself, when you set Christ on the cross and you set yourself as the propitiation standard and rejecting the Father's propitiation standard because you're crucifying Jesus again to yourself. Well, here... You're trampling underfoot the Son of God. You're regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified. You're insulting the Spirit of grace. Apostasy is an ugly, ugly thing. And the judgment is severe. Temporal judgment in time, severe. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge His people. In some ways, that's the most comforting verse I've read this morning. The Lord will judge His people. Because you know what? Even while that judgment is being poured forth, I'm still His people. (laughs) Thank you, Father. Thank you. I'm yours. Judgment begins with the house of God, and so I'm happy. I mean, it's not pleasant. But the fact that that judgment is hitting me means I'm your people. And that's a, that's a love expression. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Maybe that'll be your key verse that'll jump out at you. But pick one of those. Pick one of those that when you're thinking your way through and you're thinking, okay, five judgment passages in Hebrews. I'm thinking through the, you know, do not drift or, or angels. And I'm thinking through uh, evil unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Or, or uh, I'm going to pick uh, do not fail to enter into rest or one of those verses. Or I'm going to pick this, uh, if God permits, press on to maturity, if God permits for my third warning. And I'm going to think of this uh, um, terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God for the fourth warning. And then the fifth warning passage in chapter 12. And this is where we have the, uh, the statement in chapter 12 of the Father's discipline. 
the fact that it's not fun in the process, but afterwards you've been trained by it. And so, um, 12 through 29, without reading the whole chapter, just picking out a verse here. It's a verse that speaks of, um, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. How about verse 15? See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God so that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and, and by it many be defiled. Maybe that'll be your key verse. Just remember this. Or Esau be the example who uh, sold his own birthright for a single meal and even afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. Okay? That's a severe warning. What if God gives you over? What if you spend such time in apostasy that the Father, he's, he's, he's been judging you, He's been burning you, He's been doing the judgments, He's been doing these things, nothing has been bringing you back. And so then what happens? Romans 1, there's three giving overs. And then that whole question about if God permits is kind of answered, isn't it? God's not permitting anymore. He's giving you over. There will be no repentance. There will be, you can seek it for tears with tears and it's not coming. And uh, I might have mentioned, I think I did, was it two weeks ago when I said this is scarier than the sin unto death. Would you agree? To me, the sin unto death at least has the mercy of going to heaven, <laughs> getting out of here, being done with all this. But to be given over in divine discipline for the non-sin unto death, prolonged darkness, you know, with tears and, and just to this, this miserable life, this miserable, non-productive, non-glorifying life. I, I view that as scarier than just the sinner to death. You know, kill me now. But God knows what He's doing. And if, uh, if in fact, God takes your negative example and 20 years, 30 years, 40 years of, of misery. And he warns hundreds of others to not copy you. <laughs> then there's hundreds of others that are bearing lots of fruit for Jesus Christ. And, uh, and God knows what he's doing. Say. Anyway, so you might think of this warning here, or you might think of the, uh, the Esau warning. You might think of the... Um, do not refuse him who is speaking. Do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them, much less will we escape. How much less? Infinitely less. How much less will we escape? So we have to hear his voice. All right, so these are the five warning passages. Now this one is followed by an encouraging, but we've got uh, uh, kind of a silver lining to this wrath. We've got a, 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 uh, an encouragement that's being sent with, uh, with this uh, rebuke. The primary author and those with him are persuaded that the warning passages in Hebrews will be effective in saving the readers from their considered apostatizing. He says, we remain convinced we remain convinced. If you've been with us uh, for some time, you might recall we did this study in the Second Corinthians series. We've done this study several times, actually. 
The verb is patho. It goes well with pistuo, to believe. It is a... Uh, let me get back to Hebrews here. It, um, the persuasion, the convictions that come, having been persuaded, they're important. They become uh, useful. They become valuable in ministering to one another and responding to the Lord's guidance in living out the faith convictions that we have, the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. That we come under persuasions, we come under convictions. And in fact, until you are convicted, until you are persuaded, you can't even believe anything. Patho is a prerequisite for pistuo. You'll never believe in Jesus Christ until you've been persuaded that you need to. <laughs> until you've been persuaded that He's the Savior. Until you've been persuaded that you're a sinner going to hell. At some point, there's information that comes to you and you get persuaded. The grace of God draws and convicts and prepares you and, and you get persuaded that if I don't believe in Jesus Christ, I'm going to hell. Okay? So that persuasion is important. It's a fascinating doctrine and it's, and it's used here. The author is persuaded, convinced, that uh, his readers, the, the uh, recipients of the, of the epistle to the Hebrews, that they're going to respond. And that they're going to be walking in the better things. That they're not going to be the, the burned field. They're not going to be walking in the things of darkness. So the primary author and those with him are persuaded that the warning passages in Hebrews will be effective in saving the readers from their considered apostatizing. Now they're thinking about it. They're considering it. They're thinking about doing something that some of them are saying, no, we probably shouldn't do that. And others are saying, yeah, we probably should. Okay, so they're thinking about it. And you're, you're here this morning saying, well, what kind of a moron would think that? Well, let me tell you, everybody does it. Jesus did it. Okay? And it's not a sin to consider. It's not a sin to think about it. It's not a sin to be in the depths of testing and to wonder, can I bail out of this? When, when, the, when the fire is all around you and the idea hits you that says, wait a minute, I can make this stop if I just bail out of here. Okay? When the idea hits you, the idea is a temptation. And it's not a sin to be tempted. And fundamentally... I don't think it's even a sin to consider, to think about it, at least for a moment, so that you can stop and cycle the doctrine and say, wait a minute. Because Jesus thought about it. He even said it out loud. He said, what shall I say? Father, let this cup pass by me. Right? He said, you know, if it could be your will, which most often means we wanted this to happen, Father, make this be your will. Let this cup pass by. Is it, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass by me. Then he stops and he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so to me, and clearly temptation is not a sin. That's, no one doubts that. But to think about the temptation, to consider the temptation, I don't view that as a sin either. James tells us when sin conceives, right? When you're carried away and enticed by your own lust. But, it, but just thinking about it is not being carried away with it. 
Thinking about it is the, is the volitional test. Thinking about it is when you have the opportunity to stop and think it through. And God wants you to think it through. God doesn't want a mindless, thoughtless obedience. God wants a considered, thoughtful obedience. God wants a brother and a sister, a, you know, children of God, that when faced with, with uh, apostasy urges or sin temptations or whatever, when we're faced with these opportunities to go off the rails that we actually cycle the doctrine, reflect, slow down, think it through, even, uh, even considering what the tragic end of that path might be is useful. I mean, how many times again and again does Proverbs say, do you know where that road goes? You know, stay away from that woman, do you know where she's going to take you? Again and again, Proverbs uses that. So to think these things through and say, Father... Help me, Father. I believe, but help my unbelief. <laughs> All right? Get me through this test. My, my, my humanity wants to bail. My carnality wants to throw in the towel. And yet, you've called me to this assignment. So I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to keep my eyes fixed on you. We're going to keep going. Even though I've thought about hitting the road. I've thought about bailing. Okay? And uh, the, uh, these are the aspects here. Now, so to consider apostatizing. And you need to be saved. You need to be saved. And this is why we talk about the different phases of salvation and why um, I'll put this drawing back up here. No, I'll just make a new one. I know I have an old one, but I won't take the time to find it. All the ways that the Bible uses the term Saved. One, two, three. You don't get saved three different times, but there's three phases or three, what we call phase one, phase two, phase three. There's three senses in which the Bible uses the word saved, uses the verb, uses the noun, talks about being saved or saving you. And obviously when you receive eternal life, uh, that's the, the first one we all think about, Right? When you, when you read the word saved, that's the first thing you think about is I'm going to believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. And the Bible uses the word that way a lot of times. But not the only way that the Bible uses the word saved. The Bible also uses it here in time in the outworking of our faith. And it talks about the uh, deliverance from sin, the power of sin. Here we're saved from the penalty of sin. But here we're saved from the power of sin. I'm going to show you these verses here this morning. In fact, I'm not even going to let you leave until you can pass this test. <laughs> I'll give you a quiz on your way out the door, and if you don't answer right, I'll turn you around and say, go sit back down again. Phase one, salvation, you're saved from the penalty of sin, right? The wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. But in phase two, salvation, you're saved from the power of sin because sin has a very real power. And sin wants you to apostatize, and sin wants you to bail, to leave your church, to leave your marriage, to leave whatever. Sin wants you to do all these things. And there's a very real power there. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so when you cycle the Word of God, it comes alive. That living Word of God is going to save you. And it can save you 10 times today, 20 times tomorrow. It can save you repeatedly, all day, every day. That's the blood of Christ that keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And then the Bible also uses sin, ultimately, the very presence of sin. 
We're saved from the presence of sin when we are caught up into glory, when we, through death or rapture, when we leave, when we leave mortality and we get to heaven, when we all get to heaven, we're done with the sin routine, okay, right? That's over. We're saved from the, pe- the presence of sin. And so, and so the Bible will use save and salvation and these terms in all three of these senses. These are three senses for the idea of being saved. And that's vital then. So when we talk about how these warning passages are effective in saving the readers, saving them from their considered apostatizing, and clearly that's phase two, the phase two sense of salvation. They're considering returning back to Judaism they're, return, they're considering abandoning the truth of the church age, returning back to their Levitical priesthood. And if they hurry, they can get back to Jerusalem before it's surrounded and destroyed. Okay? You think, well, who would want to do that? These guys. They're considering it. First, uh, if you want some other examples of this, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 2. Another example of phase 2 salvation whereby uh, apostatizing could be the alternative. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Why do you have to preach the gospel to believers? Okay. Well, aren't they past that already? Aren't they already saved? Yes, phase one. But they're going to need some additional phase two salvations. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, so they received it, in which also you stand, they accepted it. They have a positional truth standing, introduced by grace into this faith in which we stand. No question, he's talking to believers. The whole book has been addressed to the Corinthian believers. So I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are presently being saved ones. If you hold, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. So you notice how from verse 1 into verse 2, now we've, we've shifted from phase 1 to phase 2. You receive the gospel, you're standing in the faith, keep standing in the faith. Keep living the Word of God. Hold fast to the Word of God. And you will keep on being saved. I was saved in September of 1973. But I keep on being saved all day, every day. Every time the Word of God comes alive in my soul and says, don't do that. And on those occasions when I don't listen, when I grieve and quench and resist the Holy Spirit, and even though the Word of God says don't do that, I shove that out the window and I do it. Guess what? I wasn't saved. The Word didn't save me. Not that day. Okay? I'm still regenerate. I still have eternal life. I'm born again. I'm going to heaven. But on that day, on that temptation, at that moment, the Word of God didn't save me. And whose fault is that? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, the Word didn't let me down. The Word of God is able to. Able to. uh Uh-huh. Able to. Got it by which you are presently being saved if you hold fast the Word. So when you stopped holding fast to the Word of God, don't be shocked that uh, the very next temptation that crosses your path is, you you know, you're going to grab that with both hands and jump into carnality with both feet. 
because you stopped living by the Word of God, which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Believed in vain. And uh, the whole concept of believing but not receiving eternal life is not what we're dealing with here. We're talking about believing and not living out the purpose, having the Ecclesiastes life, when instead of believing and having the victorious life, you have the vain Ecclesiastes life. How sad is that? Uh, James one twenty one. Hebrews, James, one twenty one, And there's no question, it's written to believers from the very beginning, down through all these verses, get down to verse 19. Know this, beloved, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Your priority as a believer is to be under teaching. Quick to hear. Slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Be a hearer of the word of God. Not a hearer only, but a doer of the word of God. And it says, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness. So you're saved, but do you got some filthiness left over? You got some wickedness? You got, some, uh, you got, to, you got to learn some truth as you get renewed in the spirit of your mind? So put all that aside. In humility, receive the word implanted. Not in arrogance, sit there like a know-it-all, bored with what the pastor's saying. It says, in humility, receive the word implanted. Say, Father, I need to be fed today. Father, I need the word of God today. Father, teach me today. And receive it. And if the Holy Spirit is sending it, then that's for you. Don't in arrogance just throw it over your shoulder and say, oh, that's for the guy in the pew behind me. (laughs) No, it's for you. Take it in. Take it in deep. Implanted. Notice, which is able to save your souls. Okay? Able to. Able to save your souls. Phase two salvation again. Saving your soul from the power of sin. Saving your soul from the snares of apostasy. Saving your soul from all these other temptations able to. Notice it doesn't say, learn enough doctrine and doctrine will automatically give you every victory for the rest of your life. Doesn't say that. Doctrine will not automatically give you victory. It will if you use it. But if you don't use it, see? It doesn't say the Word of God which always saves your soul. It says able to save your soul. Why did the Word of God not profit the Exodus generation? Because they didn't unite it with faith. It was not united by faith in the ones who heard. And so they died in the wilderness. Was that the gospel's fault? Was it the fault of the good news? No. It was their fault. They didn't apply faith. They didn't live what they received. Same thing here. If, if the Word of God, if you receive it, then use it. Receive the Word implanted. Isn't that great? Because it's a sharp sword. It pierces to that dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. Boy, that thing, it'll cut deep. Let it. Let it cut deep. And when it gets there, as deep as it needs to get, then let it dwell richly within you. Let it just dwell and churn and, and uh, do everything that it's going to do. 1 Peter 1.9 1 
Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Which salvation are we talking about here? Well, as we back up, it says, uh, well, first of all, it says you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That's a clue. Um, then it says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. All right, that's a clue. We're talking to believers. Born again, elect, fellow saints. And we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Like we saw last hour, the power of the resurrection, uh, living that victorious life and the living hope. Uh, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You're not there yet, but your reward is, your inheritance is. Who are protected by the power of God. So uh, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's the phase three salvation. We'll get there someday. Now in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, first class, it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, all right, so yeah, you had faith in September of 1973 and you got saved 45 years ago, but what's the display of that? What is it that people are seeing today? What's that exhibit? What's the manifestation? Are you being found in Christ? The proof of your faith, more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, the audience that Peter's writing to, they weren't disciples. They didn't walk with him as he walked with him. You and I aren't old enough. We weren't around back then. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. So if you keep your attention on the things above, the Word of God's going to save you. Take your attention off the things above, look to yourself, look to your problems, quit using the Word of God. You're not going to obtain as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls, as verse 9 speaks about. It's a phase two salvation there. And along with the salvation comes the better things. The better things, the, the things that accompany salvation, the things that accompany phase two salvation. What accompanies phase two salvation? Fruit. The bearing of fruit. Helping others. Walking in the light. You're useful for service. David was excited when he was restored to fellowship. Uh, he was able to instruct sinners in the way. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation and I will instruct sinners in the way. That's a better thing that accompanies salvation when he was restored to fellowship. All right. For God is not unjust. When they repent or when they, and technically if they, if they consider it but don't step off the, the rails, then they don't have to, uh, they can preemptively confess by not, doing the apostasy. But God is not unjust so as to forget. They're going to bear fruit. He's going to use them. They're going to move forward. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And so if you're on the edge of falling away, He's got a provision. 
the better things concerning you, better things that accompany salvation, and we can advance. We can advance, and that's what he's going to encourage them here is to advance. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That they're going to press on to maturity. That God's going to permit them to press on to maturity. They're going to realize that full assurance of hope. And they will not be sluggish, but they will inherit the promises. So we'll pick up here next week, Lord willing, and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for these reminders, Father. And if there's anyone here this morning that thinks this could never happen to them, then open their eyes to quit lying to themselves and see that any believer, any believer, we still have within us a no good thing. We still have a sinful nature. And uh, any one of us can, uh, can fall into this kind of darkness. So Father, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I pray that we would be humble to receive the word implanted. I, I pray that we would be humble to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. That, uh, that Father, we might not be those that shrink away to destruction. Thank you, Father, for being faithful. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to do